Taking Stock with Mandy Johnston. Thanks to Skillnet Ireland, driving business success through innovative training and upskilling. This is News Talk. You're welcome to News Talk's Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston and this is a show that takes a deeper look at the stories that are hitting the headlines and a wider view of the political and business environment that we live in. And this is our first show back after the Christmas break. So can I wish you all a happy 2023. On today's show, we'll be asking leading economist and Sunday Times columnist Cormac Lucy if Ireland, Europe and the US are heading for a recession in 2023. The Tourism Industry Confederation CEO will be joining us to explain why he thinks that sector won't fully recover from the pandemic until 2026. And finally, a Women in Financial Crime Conference is set to take place later this month. I'll be talking to an international anti-financial crime expert and she's also chair of that conference. Her name is Frederica Tagogna and she's going to tell us about her career, which has involved everything from investigating large multinational banks to the Italian mafia. You can get in contact with us by emailing takingstock at newstalk.com or on Twitter at StockNT. Now, first up today, we've seen the forecasts for the Irish economy are relatively positive. The ESRI are saying that we will resist the or word this year. And this week, we saw Bonanza Corporation tax receipts in the state coffers. But inflation, the ongoing war and the energy crisis are all making waves right across the world. This makes the threat of recession quite real for 2023. But what are the chances of recession here in Ireland as a result of all this uncertainty? To discuss this now, I'm delighted to be joined by economic commentator and columnist for the Sunday Times, Cormac Lucy. Welcome, Cormac. Thanks, Mandy. Now, after this week's figures, Cormac, it's a bit odd, it might seem, to talk about recession. But before we get stuck into the whys and wherefore, can you just give us what is the definition of a recession? There are various definitions. The, the simplest one, uh, even though the experts wouldn't uh, hang their hat on it, is two successive quarters of negative economic growth. Mm. So two successive quarters of the economy going backwards. And in evaluating our own chances of slipping into that scenario, what are the key factors that would affect us? And secondly, what, in your view, is the likelihood of that happening to us in, in 2023? Well, you, you introduced this uh, section by mentioning the, the amazing tax receipts that the government uh, enjoyed in the, in the final months of 2022. And they were driven <clears throat> mostly by extraordinarily strong corporation tax receipts. So when you're looking at the Irish economy, really there are two economies. There's the, the foreign direct investment economy centred mainly in the tech and pharma sectors. And that's been the horse that's been dragging the Irish economy forward, uh, you know, since the crash 15 years ago. And then you've got the the domestic indigenous sector. And I I worry that that is very much neglected by our our, our political masters, that they're so giddy at the fantastic results coming from the foreign sector. uh, And they're so in such a rush to, to cling to the good news coming from there that they may overlook difficulties and problems in the domestic sector. So what's driving the Irish economy? Really, it's those two things operating side by side in the one jurisdiction, but not having an awful lot to do with one another. And while the the FDI, the foreign direct investment sector, is going terrifically well, the, the tech sector in the US has suffered significant reversals in the last six months. 
We have heard of, of well-publicised layoffs in the tech sector there and here. And I'm not sure that the indigenous sector, the domestic economy, has ever really recovered fully from the, the bust that we suffered uh, you know, 10, 15 years ago. So will we go into recession? I think it's, it's very difficult to look at the Irish economy in isolation, mm. as, as the SRI does. And, and there are good reasons for them to do that. The way I look at it is, what's happening to the neighbours of ours? What's happening in America, Britain, Europe? And if they all go into recession, I just don't see how we can escape going into recession too. And I think Britain is probably in a recession already. I think the Eurozone is certainly in a recession already. And I think I I expect America to go into a recession uh, before the, the middle of this year. So I think we're going to get dragged into a recession because of our exposure to, to international influences. Mm. And that brings us quite swiftly into that discussion about, you know, who are we affected by in a macroeconomic sense more? Is it Boston or is it Berlin? Let's just focus on the, the US for a second. You mentioned there the FDI part of our economy is quite you know, a large part of our economy and a large part of our tax take. But do you see that in the US economy um, that that there might be some change to that uh, corporation tax policy that might affect us in a very negative way very quickly? Um, Or do you see that that's going to just bob along for the next couple of years. I see uh, Thomas Huber, I think, writing this week in, in the currency that look, actually there's really no threat to the tech, to the corporation tax or the pharma receipts. Do you see that there's a threat to that FDI stuff in the short term? Not in the short term. I, I mean, the thing is, we've got this low tax policy that nobody else really has. Mm. And we've, we've, we've welded that on to membership of the EU which gives multinationals that settle here immediate access to the full EU market. Uh, And those two things together are very powerful and very difficult to imitate. Secondly, we've been doing this for the guts of 50 years. So we have a whole tranche of foreign multinationals with operations here. There are Irish people working there. They've established individual and group track records within their larger multinational organizations of efficiency, reliability. So I think the, the FDI sector has deep and strong roots here in Ireland. Uh, but the one thing that would slightly worry me, you know, you, you asked the question in the short term. So in the short term, I don't see any significant threat. But in the longer term, uh, I would be, slight, I'd be worried that the larger developed world economies, Germany, France, uh, the US, might come back at our corporation tax rate. You know, having mm. having got their teeth in once, uh, they, they, they may then come back and say, well, these changes didn't deliver the results we expected. We need to go in a second time and deeper this time. Uh, that would be my, my, my longer term worry. Uh, Okay, let's just focus on the US for a moment. Um, I've seen there that although Goldman Sachs are predicting that the US economy will probably manage some sort of soft landing next year, you don't entirely agree, do you? And and why is that? Well, I'm uh, rather old-fashioned, Mandy. I I learned my economics back in the 1980s when uh, monetarism was was the prevailing doctrine. And... That has fallen by the wayside uh, academically and in many uh, investment banks. But I still find that it is the best, you know, simple explainer. It's not a complete explainer mm. of what's happening. And monetary economists 
were warning in the autumn of 2020, six months after the pandemic hit, five months after central banks turbocharged money supply growth, they were warning this is going to lead to a big economic hangover. Uh, They are now warning that central banks have put their feet on the brakes too hard and that money supply growth is, is, is negative. And that's something that is very unusual. It's very, it's, it's got negative consequences. So I would, based on that analysis, based on our monetary analysis, uh, expect a recession in the US by the, by the summer, um, you know, by the autumn at the latest. And I think it could be quite, quite uh, sharper than people expect because they have thrown out this monetary analysis. It's kind of old hat, passe, and they've moved on to different frameworks of analysis as have the central banks. And and this is why they were so slow to recognize that the inflation genie was out of the bottle. And this is why I think they're persisting today in overdoing the monetary medicine. And that is is, is at risk of, of unleashing significant recessions across the developed world. Yeah, and this comes back to that notion that the Fed is always moving too far, too late. Um, but like, there's a lot of talk about they're bottoming, bottoming out on the interest rate increases now. What do you think is going to happen there in the coming months? Well, I think the, if, if we just look at America uh, and, and their central bank, because the others are going to follow mm. uh, with, with a time delay, uh, I think by the middle of this year, no later than the middle of this year, inflation data in the States will, will be falling quite sharply. Economic output will be falling. And victory for the Fed will be in sight. They won't be able to declare victory, but it will be in sight. Mm. And they will, they'll take their foot off the brake. They're not going to put their, switch their foot to the accelerator, but they'll take their foot off the brake. Uh, that will allow financial markets uh, go on a tear, which of itself relaxes financial conditions and, and facilitates greater growth. So I think in, in the States, we're, we're very near the end of the interest rate hiking cycle. I think in Europe, it will last longer, uh, you know, maybe by six months. But the ECB, the European Central Bank, is making a lot of hawkish noises at the moment. I think they're, they're fully mistaken. Uh, and I think they, too, will have to start softening their rhetoric and, and their position by the end of this year. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston and I'm chatting to the economic commentator and columnist from the Sunday Times, Cormac Lucy. Let's pick up there, uh, Cormac, on the European side of things. You mentioned there that the ECB has been fairly hawkish, but you also said that inevitably the world will follow the US. So we might anticipate, uh, you know, a a reversal of interest rate increases at least uh, halfway or or three quarters of the way through the year. But what about individual countries and how they're faring? I I read recently that, for example, Germany's inflation is is actually decreasing now. So why is a country like Germany successful at their own policy and yet the ECB and the European model is moving in a a sort of slightly uh, more aggressive uh, direction than individual member states? Well, I think the problem with the uh, common currency project, with the euro, is that it is essentially a politically motivated project mm-hmm. and that the members of the euro would not, under any other circumstances, form part of a logical or coherent common currency. That There are too many fundamental economic differences between them. And, and what that means is one monetary policy will not fit all countries. So 
So what, what's right in, in Italy is going to be wrong in Germany or vice versa. And the, the Germans have had, for them, an alarming spurt in inflation. Uh, it's gone up above 10% in, in recent months, where they've been used to 1%, 2% inflation for the last few decades. And this has triggered German interest in the European Central Bank to become very hawkish. Mm. Last month's inflation data in Germany did show a significant fall in German inflation, but I'd, I'd be wary of placing too much reliance on one month's data. Mm. Uh, the, the single month's data can be very uh, wobbly and fragile. So if you take sort of three months or six months' data, that still so shows uh, German inflation way higher than, than what they would be willing to accept. Mm. So, so they're pushing for tighter policy. Because if you, you have a country like Italy, and their public sector debt is, is about twice their national income. So if, if interest rates go up, let's say, by 4%, which is what the European Central Bank is contemplating, that is an increase in Italy's interest bill of 4% of 200%. That's mm. 8% of their national income. So, so the Italian government would suddenly, uh, you know, as, as they refunded their debts, they would be on the hook to pay a far, far higher interest bill, and that would be massively destabilizing. So there's a, there's a covert battle taking place behind the scenes in the European Central Bank between the hawks centered around the German interests and the doves centered around Mediterranean interests uh, over this policy. And it, it's interesting that you know we have two major dogs in this fight. Uh, Philip Lane is the chief economist of the European Central Bank. He's the former head of the Central Bank here. And Pascal Donahoe is, is head of the Eurogroup of Finance Ministers. Mm. Uh, so it'll be interesting to hear what their views on, on this matter are. But to date, neither has stuck their head above the parapet. And where, in your view, finally, do we sit in that? Just say um, the European economy as a whole was to tip into recession in 2023. What's the likelihood for Ireland remaining like an outlier, if you like, with our economy performing as well as it has in the past? I think we are condemned to uh, a semi-detached membership of the euro uh, precisely because half of our economy, putting it very bluntly, the the foreign direct investment sector, it's really driven by factors that have a limited amount to do with the eurozone economy. And that is a huge driver of our economy. So the, 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 the Eurozone can be dark in the Eurozone, but the sun can be shining in Ireland. Mm. Uh, and that, now the danger is if the sectors, the SBI sectors that we're heavily dependent on, uh, pharma and tech, if they both reverse sharply at the same time, it could be dark here in Ireland even though the sun might be shining in the rest of the Eurozone. Mm, that's an interesting point. Well, look, I think it's important to discuss those issues. Look, we've had a lot of good news on the economic front, particularly this week, but we, we don't want to get into wishful thinking or willful blindness or, God forbid, the horrific soft landings discussion again. <laughs> but for now, we'll have to leave it there. That's commentator and columnist for the Sunday Times, Cormac Lucy. Cormac, thank you so much for giving us your time today. Thanks, Mandy. This is Mandy Johnston with you on News Talks Taking Stock. Coming up next, Irish tourism bounced back last year quicker than most people expected, but with many new problems on the horizon. What are the issues that could stall its growth in 2023? Find out after the break. 
You welcome back to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. Now, over the last few years, few industries were harder hit than the tourism sector. But with recovery ongoing and 2022 showing things are going much better than many people expected, there's still a long road to go yet before we're at full recovery. To discuss the issues, we're joined now by Owen O'Mara Walsh, who's Chief Executive at Irish Tourism Industry Confederation. Owen, you're very welcome. Thanks for joining us on News Talk today. Thanks, Mandy. Now, when I saw from your figures that around 7 million international tourists came to Ireland in 2022, according to your research, can you just talk me through a little bit about where those tourists come from and what type of a tourist does Ireland attract? Sure. Well, I I think just to to, to put it in context, COVID was, was ruinous for the Irish tourism industry mainly because international travel was, of course, banned, as, as we all recall. So for about a two-year period, well, certainly from March 2020, uh, there were few to none uh, international visitors on the ground. And I think the thing, the thing to remember about Irish tourism is that 75% of the tourism economy here is based on international visitors. So the domestic market is, is important, and, and we all greatly value the staycation market during the, during the COVID crash. But really, we needed to get the international tourists back. Thankfully, as you said, 2022 was better than anticipated. We had about 7 million international tourists come back to the country uh, last year, which was which was fabulous. The biggest uh, market was was Central Europe, France and Germany sort of being uh, sort of the star performers there. Uh, and the North American market was also strong. About 1.5 million North Americans came to Ireland on holiday last year. And they're a particularly attractive market because they're the big spenders. They tend to stay here for about seven to ten days, and they also tour the region. So certainly, certainly, we're back about seventy-three percent of pre-pandemic levels we we we, we secured last year. However, twenty twenty-three and and kind of the the sort of the immediate term and the medium term are looking a little bit more dicey. So there's still a lot of concern within the industry that the full recovery back to pre-pandemic levels is going to be some time off. Yeah, and I read in dispatches that, in your view, it'll be 2026 before the Irish tourism sector kind of returns to those pre-pandemic levels. But we're not far away from it. Just thinking about last year, you couldn't get a hotel in Dublin, Belfast or Cork for for love nor money. Um, And that was the same around a lot of the parts of the country. The airport, uh, Dublin airport in particular, was absolutely jammed to capacity, not just with people going out, but with people coming in. So why do you think it's going to be three more years before we hit that, you know, pre-pandemic? pandemic level again. Well, you, well, you're right. Certainly, demand far outstripped supply last year. So, so everyone was sort of surprised by the uh, the pace of the recovery last year, and uh, supply, whether it was accommodation or indeed car hire or indeed uh, the ability of airport to manage numbers, really struggled to keep up with demand. And, and demand surged, you know, partly because because of all the pent up demand. There was a lot of bookings, say in 2020, 2021, that got deferred into 2022. You also had a lot of accumulated savings um, and you know that desire to travel really came home strongly last year and supply really struggled um, this year will be a sort of a, a more normal year in, in terms of the pent-up demand a lot of the pent-up demand will have washed through the system and you have a lot I suppose of, of sort of macroeconomic uh, worries uh, globally and indeed here in 
Ireland that are that are going to, if you like, soften demand. You've got hyperinflation, you've got costs of business going through the roof. So we do expect demand to soften, particularly from say the GB market, which which is is really facing its own economic difficulties. And indeed the European market could well, you know, between inflation and, and, and soaring interest rates could well um, um nosedive into, into recession. The North American market will fingers crossed be strong and that's going to be important. But I think I, I think the thing to remember is that Irish tourism is acutely vulnerable to external shocks. And we saw that, you know, from, you know, whether it was the, the great financial crash of 2008 or, or 9-11 or foot and mouth or, you know, even the volcanic ash cloud. So, you know, this year is no different. There's a lot of external factors which actually uh, are presenting a challenge uh, for, for Irish tourism. And, and one of those is the Ukraine war. Not, not only is it sort of feeding into the inflationary costs of, of businesses here, but also um, because of um, government policy and how we're housing Ukrainian refugees, a lot of the tourism accommodation mm. bed stock has been taken out of the equation. So, you know, that full recovery back to pre-crash, pre-pandemic levels, it, uh, we do estimate is about 2026. And it's important we get there as soon as possible because this is the country's largest indigenous industry and biggest regional employer. Indeed uh, and it brings us to the other side of the equation which is supply and you've mentioned there the the issue of housing uh, refugees from Ukraine and we need to be very sensitive about this because it's a, a very important uh, part of, of, of assisting with that humanitarian crisis that exists but the Irish Times this week reporting that 28% I think it said of hotel space being used to house refugees in Ireland. What does that look like in terms of, you know, hotel bedroom numbers and what, if anything, is being done about transitioning those back from accommodating refugees to being used for the supply stock for tourism again? Because it's not just about the beds, is it? It's about what tourism brings to every single community um, where, you know, they thrive on tourism, but they also need it. Absolutely. And if, if, if you look at, you know, parts of the wild Atlantic Way or, you know, the Killarneys of this world or, or, or Westports or, or County Clares, you know, there, there's very little other economic sectors, but for tourism, I mean, there's agriculture by all means, but that's subsidized to a large degree by, by Europe and so on. And tourism can often be the only show in town and is, is absolutely critical to, to local economies. So that whole issue of, um, you know, um, the, the amount of tourism accommodation bedstock, which has been contracted to government for humanitarian reasons. And from a humanitarian perspective, that is perfectly understandable. And it's not an issue, you know, in, in the month of January or in the month of February. But if it's still the case from March, April, May onwards, there's going, there's going to be a serious problem. And if there's no tourism beds in tourism towns uh, around the country, there won't be tourism activity in those towns. And that will have a real knock-on consequence. And the hotels will be okay because they get a sort of a rate from government or Albeit it's not as as attractive as, as say the tourism economy, but they do get they do get remuneration from the government. But it's the downstream tourism businesses that I'd be particularly worried about. So you know the the restaurants, the the tourist attractions, the the uh, co- coach companies, uh, the pubs, uh, the cultural experiences, they won't get the tourism dollar, and that's of gr- of great concern. Fulcher Ireland, which is the the state agency for tourism, they uh, estimate that for every euro that a tourist spends in accommodation. Two euro fifty is spent in ancillary tourism services. So, if that money is 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 foregone, there's going to be serious consequences. 
we've been calling for quite some time um, and you know as you said the Irish Times you know reported on it this month that you know you know there is going to be a, mm. a, a there, there is currently and there will be an even more acute crisis in this regard but we've been calling for some time that there needs to be a Department of Taoiseach led approach to this issue such as the the seriousness of it not not necessarily just for the tourism industry uh, and all the jobs that that are that are that are within that but also for for the welfare of refugees because you know a refugee uh, family that come from a, a war-torn situation and, a, and have been bombed out of their house you know the, the wrong place for them to be month after month after month is in a hotel bedroom or in a, a B&B uh, so, so we really called for a kind of a comprehensive plan um, to to um, to uh, allocate appropriate accommodation services to refugees. You know, that, that should include modular housing, it should include, include unused buildings, state in- institutions, vacant dwellings, you know, all the other forms yeah. of accommodation. And, and and the government can't be over-reliant on the tourism accommodation stock because it's A, it's not good for, for the refugees, but B, it will have serious economic consequences for the country as, as we as we go from March onwards. Absolutely, much wider issue than, than just addressing the tourism factors around it. Um, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, and I'm talking to Ono Mara Walsh, who's Chief Executive at Irish Tourism Industry Confederation. Um, just another area I wanted to touch on, Ono, if I can, is the issue of service. So many, many people have said to me over recent months that that traditional Irish welcome is is kind of sadly lacking or being lost in some way. Um from restaurants and hotels all around the country. And I'm not mentioning non-Irish staff, I mean from Irish staff and non-Irish staff. Is there such a thing as training people to greet people in that traditional way that Irish people are so good at, like so welcoming, the a course for the Cade Mila Falcha, if you like. Is there anything like that that you teach people who are getting into service? I know that there's huge staffing issues right around the country and supplies an issue, but is that something you teach people? Yeah, I, I I think it's a very important issue, and and we can't, if you like, take it for granted. I mean, we are we, you know, as you, as you say, we've been known for for decades as, as the Cade Midafolch and the Welcome, and that's a very important aspect of the whole Irish tourism product because you know we're never going to be able to compete on price, for example, to, with the you know the Mediterranean countries or or the 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 countries that have a cheaper cost base. We're much more expensive than that, so we we always have to provide value, and alongside our wonderful culture and our wonderful scenery, we have to provide the the Cade Mila Fulcher and the welcome. And certainly during COVID, because of the kind of stop-start nature of, of, of COVID, insofar as, you know, every time there was a COVID wave, uh, particularly hospitality and travel and tourism was shut down. Other sectors were allowed to a certain extent trade, but, but tourism and hospitality was effectively shut down. And as a result, we lost a lot of employees. So we, d- we did have an issue this summer and we do have an issue at the moment that we have to address, whereby we have a lot of new employees and new staff to the sector and 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 businesses are doing their their training and and ensuring that um their staff are as well equipped uh, as possible in in terms of the welcome and the hospitality and also Fortune Ireland are doing a lot of work in terms of making tourism a career of choice but it's something it's it's a key thing it's an it's an intangible to a certain mm. extent um, but it's a really, really important thing and we can't lose sight of it because all the surveys that Fulcher Ireland do or, or Tourism Ireland do show that the, the Irish welcome, the, the kind of the, the, the chat, the, the kind of the, kind of the friendliness is absolutely critical alongside the culture and the scenery in terms yeah. of making Irish tourism uh, appealing. 
Um, and, you know, we, we can't take things for granted because this is a very competitive space. You know, a, an American visitor can easily choose Norway or Scotland as much as they can choose uh, Ireland. Um, so there's, there's, there's a really kind of competitive um, uh, set that we have to we have to win business from. Uh, and as I say, one of the big things is, is the welcome. And certainly it's been under strain. I'm, I'm not going to deny that um, since since COVID. And, and certainly this summer when, when we really didn't have the staffing expertise or, 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 mm. or numbers in place. Yeah. And it's something that we have to ramp up both both from a private sector perspective and also from a state agency perspective. Well, um, before I let you go, and we could probably do a whole uh, programme on pricing and what happened here in the last year uh, on the hotels, beds uh, and gouging issue. But uh, that's for another day, maybe. Before I let you go, and very finally, on the VAT issue, how successful have you been or do you think you're being on trying to lobby the government to keep that reduced rate of tax? And when are we likely to hear about that? Yeah, well, the, the VAT rate is, is is 9% at the moment, which puts uh, Irish tourism and hospitality on an even keel with all our European competitors. So if you look at any of the big European yeah. nations that take tourism seriously, they have a VAT rate of 9%, often lower. Um, the government are, are scheduled to increase it by 50%, uh, up to 13.5% on February 28th, which we think would be disastrous and would be folly and would just add uh, cost to the system at, a, at an already inflationary time. So it's going to damage demand. It, it'll It'll depress the market. It's going to retard our recovery. So we're doing a lot of obviously lobbying and a lot of case make, making. Jim Power, the economist, has recently done a report in which he he uh, highlighted that if there's a VAT increase, it's likely to lead to 24,000 job losses and add about 4% to the inflation in the sector. So, you know, there's a lot of, I think, very logical economic uh, arguments in favour of keeping VAT at 9%. Yeah. And, and hopefully we win that argument with the government. We, we, we hope that the government will give clarity soon because we don't want to kind of, you know, have to wait right up to February 28th and, and sort of the, the, the final, uh, you know, chime to midnight before we're told what the applicable VAT rate is the sector is because there's 20,000 businesses yeah. in the sector and, and you know, uh, you know the, the VAT rate and, and being competitive and keeping costs down is so, so important. Value is everything. Okay, well, Owen, we'll watch this space with interest. Um, for now, though, we'll have to leave it there. That's Owen Amaro Walsh, who's Chief Executive at the Irish Tourism Industry Confederation. Owen, thank you for joining us. Thanks so much, Mandy. This is Mandy Johnston with you on News Talks Taking Stock. Coming up next, a summit that champions women who are tackling financial crime will take place next month. We're going to talk to a crime expert. She's going to give us her insights into the industry leaders who are tackling the underworld of financial crime. This is Mandy Johnston with you on News Talks Taking Stock. You're welcome back. Now, financial crime is increasingly at the centre of many high-profile scandals. Frederica de Cogna is a well-known anti-financial crime expert and she's led numerous recent large-scale investigations on everything from financial institutions to the Italian mafia. And she joins me now to discuss this and also the AML Women in Fin Crime Summit, which is taking place shortly. Frederica, thank you very much for joining us on News Talk today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, Frederica, you certainly have had a very interesting career to date. Can you talk to me a little bit about some of the investigations that you've been involved in so far? Uh, well, 
some some of this, I, some of them I can talk about. Some some of them I cannot. But I, I'll leave I'll leave some things well, to, just the, give to us the imagination. There have been there have been a couple of interesting ones. The ones the ones I remember the most. Uh, for example, I was once um, investigating a, a firm in uh, in a country, in a Mediterranean country. Let's let's not name it. Um, but I was routinely being followed around. Um, building to building by by big goons, uh, very very clearly. Um, it, it was never dangerous because whenever we do these things, we always have um, police and local authorities involvement. So it was never dangerous, but it was just very funny uh, seeing this face pop up in in different in different places and in different locations at all times. Um, then there have there have been some that have been incredibly. Interesting, um, whilst perhaps less dangerous, but um, the uh, investigations into, for example, a, a crypto exchange, uh, the intricacy. The we we had at some point an entire room with walls plastered with with the network of um, of the the various shell companies through which the money was going. And the very interesting thing is that uh, behind this, for example, there was the the well known Lazarus Group, the North Korean um, hacking um, sort of group um, and we, um, we we didn't get to it until very late in investigation but when we did get there there was a sort of wow around around the room um, and various other things but I think that um, the the interesting the interesting um, part of what we do is that um, we often think that financial crime is hidden in some hideous places or it's the Italian mafia. Uh, and it's actually everywhere around us in the banks where we bank every day. You know, I've uncovered um, with my team and ever on my own, but um, a, a large ISIS terrorist operation at one of the major banks and similar other things. So it's it's everywhere. It's not hidden in uh, exotic places. Yeah, now you've mentioned lots of hands-on experience there investigating things like financial institutions and hacking scandals and also cryptocurrencies. Um, what do you think are the ones that are on the increase nowadays? What are people most susceptible to? Uh, I mean... It's it's funny. Just just a few uh, a few hours ago, I think someone posted on LinkedIn um, that yet another um, gaming, uh, but by gaming I mean online casino type mm. of firm, uh, has been licensed to accept payments in in cryptos. And what could possibly go wrong? We we all said in in our line of work uh, that is certainly on the rise. Cryptocurrencies in gaming have um, almost entirely, uh, not entirely, but I now rank at the same place in our in, in things that keep us busy uh, as the financial the traditional financial services um, so certainly um, those have increased um, and also there is the um, in, in a way sort of um, uh, almost a return to the origins the um, networks through uh, fintechs and networks of fintechs which is a, a very basic type of scam uh, a la wirecard essentially um, those those are also quite quite frequent and quite common, and um, we we don't notice, but they are pretty much everywhere around us. And what about money laundering, Frederica? Um, is that something that is um, you know on the up? And can you explain how money laundering occurs in this new kind of technological world that we live in? Well. I, I think I, I, I give this, this explanation many times. So, so I, I apologize if people who've heard me elsewhere have heard it already. But essentially, if I am a 
let's say, Russian oligarch, and I don't have anything in particular against Russian oligarchs, so mafia person who's made a lot of money uh, in illicit ways by selling drugs or selling humans or evading tax or anything, I need to spend this money somewhere. If I knock on the doors of a bank and I say, hi, bank, can you please take this 50 million from me? They will ask me where I've made this 50 million, uh, millions, and I cannot say that I've made it by uh, evading tax or doing any other illicit thing. So I need to lie, hide myself um, behind a series of shell companies and other opaque structures so that it appears that this money has been made legitimately. Or I need to go to an institution that does not ask me um, those many questions. Or, as a third option, I need to go to an institution that is actually owned by um, a pal of mine, also a Russian oligarch or a mafia goon, who's made himself, has built a bank or a financial institution for himself. These are the three options. Mm. And this is money laundering these days. Um, and, and that's where it happens, because banks and financial institutions do not do checks properly, or because regulators give licenses to institutions that are actually uh, not um, legitimate. Yeah, as you say, there's there's two ways to kind of look at this. There's the regulatory side of it. There's also the governance frameworks within companies and organisations. But how do banks and police agencies in different jurisdictions, how do they respond to this type of uh, online activity? It's not easy cross-border, is it? No, it's absolutely not easy. And actually, if we look at um, where countries often fail internationally, um, you, you might be aware there is this body called FATF, which is a sort of international uh, regulator of countries, so to speak, and they check how well countries are doing in fighting financial crime. The way in which they fight is often, the way in which they fail is often relating to um, cooperation. It is just not easy because there are so many barriers. Uh, there are different uh, laws in different countries. There is GDPR and data protection. Uh, there are insufficient resources. It is incredibly, incredibly difficult. And it's not for lack of willingness, but just because of how big the problem is and how much of it there is. Um, and actually, we, we always say this, one way of fixing or improving uh, the issue of financial crime is to improve national cooperation, um, to, to take down those barriers as much as we can. Mm. And unfortunately, many still exist. Do you see in your line of work and in, in your own company business that um, companies are taking kind of more responsibility themselves? I think in the past, we sort of left it to financial institutions to protect us from this. But are companies becoming more aware and more active in this space themselves? Um, yes and no. And it's an answer I don't like when, when people give 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 to me. But um, yes, because the word AML, anti-financial crime, is ubiquitous and everyone, every bank has uh, now a, an AML program or some sort of remediation or activity relating to AML. So clearly, a lot more effort and a lot more money is being spent on the problem. Mm. But I often see that um, there is a tendency to focus a lot more on the process and optimizing the process and doing a client file in, in as many as, as as little time as it is humanly possible, as opposed to actually mitigating uh, the risk mm. and tackling the problem. 
Yeah, tackling the problem, but not tackling the source of the problem by proactively guarding yeah. against it. I, I see. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, and I'm talking to Frederica Tacogna about anti-money laundering and a new summit that is coming up in the coming weeks on financial crime. Um, now, we mentioned at the outset there that you're chairing this AML Intelligence Women in Fin Crime Summit. Can you explain to me a little bit about the summit and what you're aiming to do? Yes, absolutely. And, and with pleasure, because I'm extremely, extremely passionate about anything that sort of supports uh, attracting more women into the space of financial crime. Um, the, the the forum is an extremely um, well-known one. We have uh, had more than 3,000 women attend last year. Uh, we've had speakers from across the international space. We have an amazing lineup of people that, that is absolutely worth listening to. Um, and from from various backgrounds, from the US to from Europe, it's always interesting to to hear uh, different different perspective. The, the thing that really makes it great and that makes this kind of thing great is also the fact that it's an opportunity to debate. I've always found that whenever we we do this kind of um, events, we get a lot of questions from the audience. We get challenge. We get uh, genuine interaction with the audience. This one is going to be online, but we're also hoping to do. Uh, in-person events. Uh, and that is the best part of any of these events, the, the communication both at the event and after. Uh, absolutely, absolutely like that that type of thing. Um, so that's that's the objective. Yeah, I've had a look at a lot of your speakers are very successful in their fields. But what does it take to succeed in fighting financial crime? And And I hate asking this question, but is it different for women? Is there a reason why this is just a women-only financial crime summit? <laughs> It's it's a good question you ask. It. I'll start from the from the second half because mm. I I do not I do not love things that are only meant for women. And it feels like a quota because somehow we need to fill a quota, and and it sort of reduces or takes away from the achievement mm. if if you've got there just because you're a woman. Uh, but at the same time, I do think that women face. Um, slightly different challenges in the world of financial services and financial crime. What, what do you um, mean there? What, what type of challenges do we face that men don't? Well, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure it's happened to many of us. But if you are ambitious as a woman, you are too aggressive or, or too pushy. Whilst if you're ambitious as a man, you're applauded for, for being that that type of person. Um, if you put forward your ideas, you are aggressive again as a woman. If you do as a man, again, your peers applaud you. Um, and for that reason, I think it is important to start normalizing uh, women in, in the world of financial crime and financial services in general to give, we all have different voices. We are not all in, all the same, but we all need to find our own voices and ways of expressing ourselves. And so the more we do it, the more we go out there and speak and say our thing, the better it is for, for everyone involved. Um, and I think it also helps more junior individuals to have uh, role models. Mm. It is. I, I've grown up through my career with a role model and series of role models who've been male and have been very happy with that um, because they have been extremely lovely and supportive. But it would have been nice to have grown through my career with with a role model that was a woman as well, just just to make sure that you know you know it is possible. Mm. Um, 
And, let, and let, so, let, let's just take the gender piece out of it for a second and, and just talk a little bit about if you wanted to get into this area, what does it take for somebody to get into the area of tackling financial crime and what does it take to succeed? I think curiosity is probably the biggest thing. Um, I, I, I have a team, I've always had a team that is extremely diverse in, in what we do. Um, it, you know, people think, oh, I need to be a lawyer to work in financial crime. It's actually, it's, it is not, it's not true at all. Um, I think the thing that makes the individuals who work with me and for me uh, similar, the glue that holds them together is that curiosity. It's never stopping at what they see on the surface is digging a little a little deeper um, and it also helps with career progression being being curious um, it it means you know trying trying something different that someone else is not willing to try going going into a, a project or an engagement that maybe you you know others are not willing to do um, I think curiosity is is the biggest is the biggest um, uh, sort of skill that I can possibly uh, I can possibly uh, name and um, a desire to uh, sort of make a difference in a way mm-hmm. solve problems mm-hmm. you know I think we we're all we're all a bit uh, puzzle solvers in in this in this industry we like to we like to solve puzzles and we take many things as as a puzzle that that needs a a solution Mm. so these these are the two things well that's good advice for anybody who's looking for an interesting career in the years ahead finally and very briefly Frederica if I can financial crime is like a trillion euro uh, industry now but less than one percent of the dirty money that's uh, distributed around the globe mm. is now recovered or confiscated. I know this is a huge question, but what is the first thing or major step change that has to has to be taken to to change that? Mm. Investment, investment, and um, also um, investment in the right type of resources. Uh, a lot of countries uh, put resources in charge of regulators, enforcement authorities, and similar others who are um, very good at the policy side of things. Mm, So they're mm. very good at the theory, but not so much at the practical, real world ways of financial crime. And creating a mix of those resources will make a huge difference. Um, yeah. in, in this space. Well, like most things, any policy is, is nothing unless it's backed up with some money and some investment. For now, we're going to leave it there. That's Frederica Tacogna, a well-known anti-financial crime expert. Frederica, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Well, that's it for this episode of Taking Stock. And while we broadcast at this time on Sunday mornings, we're always available as a podcast. First on Friday mornings on the News Talk app. Next week, I'll be talking to the chair of the Clinton Institute about why Ireland shouldn't take its relationship with the US for granted. If you want to get in contact with us, you can do so on email at takingstock at newstalk.com. My thanks to all of today's guests and to the producer of Taking Stock, John Fardy, with Hugo de Silva on sound. Jonathan McRae is up next with Future Proof and then it's Gavin Riley with all of your Sunday newspapers. That's on On The Record. So from Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, thanks for listening and enjoy the rest of your day.